Amen. Thanks so much for that, Raymond, and thank you so much, Christ Church Westchester, for your hospitality. I've had a great time worshiping with you this morning, preaching here, and also getting to know some of you as well over lunch, and having a lot of conversations that have been really theologically stimulating. I've been really impressed. Isaac Whitney um, invited me to give this talk um, about a year ago, and, you know, I gave versions of talks like these, not exactly this particular talk, to different churches and so on. And usually it'll be about 30 minutes long. And then that's what I prepped initially for today. And then I talked to Isaac about it. And he's like, no, 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 our church is different. We want you to speak about 75 minutes. And I'm like, whoa, okay, you guys are serious. Um, you guys are really committed to theological understanding. That's amazing. And I've been, again, just really impressed that that's, in fact, the case. There's a lot of momentum here. There's a lot of growth here. There's a lot of serious study here and a great internship program, and, and the Word of God is being preached, and, and for that I really do thank the Lord, and thanks so much again for having me today. So um, we are primarily today going to be spending our time in this particular book, Christianity and Science, and we just released this uh, with Crossway back in August 29th um, of this year. So this is a brand new English translation. It was never before translated into the English, and it's a companion volume to another book that Boving released in the same year, 1904, called Christian Worldview. So Christianity and Science on the one hand and Christian Worldview on the other were, again, books by Herman Boving in 1904, and they were meant to be companion volumes. If Christian Worldview is a kind of zoomed-out perspective that talks about Christianity and its holistic implications for the three major areas of life that forms a worldview, metaphysics, the theory of being, epistemology, the theory of knowing, and ethics, the theory of meaning or the good and the meaningful life. Christianity and science has a kind of more zoom-in perspective and talks us through how that Christian worldview impacts higher education, um, all critical inquiry, all of the sciences, and so therefore actually talks us through the process of getting a worldview, a process of knowing scientifically, a process of knowing Christianly within an academic environment. But before we do that, before we dive into Christianity and science, and then we'll also talk about its relationship to Christian worldview more closely at the end of this particular lecture. Let me just situate Boving's writings here, and also why we're interested in Boving himself right now. He's having a moment, right? Um, maybe a lot of you have heard about Boving before because he's having this particular moment within evangelicalism, within Christianity in America and the English-speaking world right now especially. Um, in 2021, Christianity Today published an article says, saying that everybody loves Boving, authored by my former supervisor, James Eglinton, and also a co-translator with me on Christian worldview and Christianity and science. And Tim Keller made a turn towards Herman Boving toward the last three or four years of his life, talking about the way in which Boving is really helping him and seeing, therefore, in Boving an ally for Keller's own ministry. So let me just speak about why we're having a moment right now and why, why Boving is so crucial to understand um, in our current culture today. So Bovink was born in 1854, and Bovink died in 1921. And, and for a long time, people have thought of Bovink as a kind of right-hand man, a sort of theological henchman to Abraham Kuyper, right? And that wasn't a fair characterization of Bovink. Now we're starting to realize that Bovink was a genius in his own right, not just a right-hand man to Kuyper, but he was also the systematizer, right? He was the Aristotle to Kuyper's Plato. He was the Calvin to the Reformation's Luther, right? If Kuyper, like Plato or Luther, were the kind of, was the kind of more bombastic political sort of figure writing more occasional texts, Bavinck, like Aristotle or Calvin, were the more patient systematizer. 
there were the academics. They were really thinking through the implications of Kuiper's thought, in this case with regard to Boving, this movement called Neo-Calvinism that we will talk about today. And also just therefore tweaking Kuiper, correcting him in some spots where Kuiper perhaps spoke a little bit too quickly or too uh, speculatively, and they're therefore making Kuiper a bit more precise. So when people started reading Boving's Reform Dogmatics, which just was translated into the English language in 2003 to 2008, people again started to realize, oh, okay, this is the best of the modern reform tradition that we never knew we needed. And Boving is incredibly important. It's having a moment now because we're now realizing that this book, this, this, this Reform Dogmatics, this four-volume work, has been the most formative thing behind all the works that are now forming us. So we've heard of, for instance, Louis Burkhoff. We've heard of people like Meredith Klein. We've heard people like Johannes Voss, Cornelius Van Til. These are all very formative influences for American Reformed Christianity. And now that we have Boving's Reformed Dogmatics, we realize where they all got all these ideas from. This is the source, this is the font, so to speak, of all of these formative characters and figures within American Christianity, and now we're just discovering him for the first time. We're now seeing that oftentimes Louis Burkhoff's dogmatics is kind of like the Cliff Notes versions of Boving. He's literally citing paragraph by paragraph without actually mentioning Boving, but oftentimes they're actually line by line identical. Um, we're actually seeing that Voss was interacting with Boving, and that really formed Voss's understanding of redemptive history, for instance. We're seeing that Klein got his ideas from Van Til, and Van Til was getting his ideas from Boving. We're also seeing, therefore, that the biblical counseling movements, um, apologetics and reform apologetics, Tim Keller's preaching is actually being drawn from Boving's material, and it's been hidden in the Dutch for a long time. And now we're finally rediscovering him afresh, and people are realizing, again, we're, we're finally getting to the font, the sources behind all of these formative figures in American and English-speaking Christian uh, in, in Christianity. Um, and, and what do we find here in Boving? And again, why is he so important for us here? Um, Boving, and again, this is all by way of prolegomena before we even get to the notes that's in front of you. We will go through them, I promise. The reason why I think, I think Boving is resonating so much with them is that he combines a faithfulness to orthodoxy, seeing the past as a resource to engage the modern world rather than an impediment. So he's rigorously confessional. He's rigorously Catholic. He is drawing from the patristics, the medieval church, the reformational period, to engage modernity. But secondly, Boving was able to engage modernity on its own terms in the most charitable way possible. Um, when people read Boving, oftentimes they comment, I don't know where Boving's voice begins and where it ends. Because he'd be describing these different figures that he's engaging with in the most attractive ways, such that people think, now, this is Boving's view. And then only later on, like three pages later, he would criticize them in one sentence and say, but that's not my view. And then you were thinking to yourself, wait, I thought that was you. He was so careful in not strawmanning, but steelmanning his opponents. And that was incredibly attractive to a lot of people. And, and again, they're rediscovering him afresh for that reason. And secondly, therefore, he was able to articulate modern concerns and the modern people's anxieties better than they could. He was articulating concerns about the relationship between faith and science, faith and philosophy. He was articulating concerns about whether or not Christianity leads to colonialism already in 1904. He was predicting German nationalism uh, two decades before German nationalism became a serious world problem, right? So we're seeing now in Boving, therefore, not only this attention to the questions of modernity, but also an articulation of it that is incredibly charitable and an engagement with it 
by way of the older Reformed tradition. And he therefore argued, we don't need to modify the Reformed tradition to engage modernity. No, we can actually deploy it, we can use it as a resource rather than a hindrance to engage the modern world. So it's a wonderful example for us here today. So let me just talk about Bavink's life and major writings here, divided into two, uh, two periods of his life, and then talk about neo-Calvinism and the search for holism. Neo-Calvinism is the movement that he founded alongside Abraham Kuyper, and a lot of you have heard about Kuyper's name before. And then talk about Christianity and science, which is um, the primary sort of um, meaty part of our conversation tonight. And then finally, close with the relationship between Christianity and science and Christian worldview, okay? So, number one, Bavink's life and major writings. Um, really briefly, Bavink did his PhD at Leiden University in the Netherlands, and he was therefore engaged with modernity firsthand as he was uh, in a modernist school while being himself a confessionalist reformed theologian. He was writing on the ethics of Ulrich Zwingli, and then after he did his PhD, he did a brief pastorate in a small town called Franeker, before Bobbing taught at Kampen Theological Seminary or Kampen Theological University in 1882 to 1902. And then he finally transitioned to join Abraham Kuyper in the newly founded university, the Free University of Amsterdam, which was a neo-Calvinist university. And Christianity and science, in so many ways, is a kind of manifesto for why we needed this reformed university in the middle of Amsterdam when Bobbing joined it, just two years after he joined it. His major writings, um, I would divide them into two before Amsterdam and the Amsterdam years. Before Amsterdam, his major writings would include a new edition of the Leiden Synopsis, which is a kind of summary of the reformed, Dutch Reformed tradition, particularly in the 16th, 17th centuries. And he wrote a new edition of it um, as a pastor in Franeker. And then he also wrote, again, very early on in his career, right, he was in his late 20s, early 30s when he wrote the first edition of the four-volume Reform Dogmatics. And if you haven't seen the Reform Dogmatics, it's, it's four big volumes, right? Covering all the way from first things, the book of Scripture, um, the doctrine of Revelation, the relationship between faith and reason, first volume, God and creation, second and volume, sin and salvation in Christ, third volume, Holy Spirit and new creation, fourth volume. He wrote the first edition as an early 30s guy, which intimidates me. And... Um, Still amazing for me to see. And by the way, he was single at the time, and I think that explains a lot. Um, he also wrote some other crucial texts like The Catholicity of Christianity and the Church and a seminal text, a really brief piece, but again, very seminal, called Common Grace. Um, both of these texts argued that Christianity is Catholic, which means that Christianity is truly universal. And the Catholicity of the Christian Church Oftentimes, in traditional reform dogmatics and older orthodoxy, we refer primarily to the universality of the church in terms of time, going back to the past. That there's a doctrinal continuity between now to the time of the Reformation, to the time of the, 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 the medieval church, and then the time of the patristics. But Bavink extended the idea of Catholicity to saying that even modernity can't help it but echo the truths of the Christian faith. Even modernity, even though they're actually explicitly against Christianity in modernism, because they're still people made in the image of God and still people exposed to God's common grace that can't help it but echo truths that are actually more resident in Christianity. And so when Bavink is facing modernity, he's actually seeing it, as we're going to see, as an opportunity to showcase the inescapability of the Christian faith, the inescapability of the Christian faith. And that's, again, as well because of common grace. So 
his writings before Amsterdam were primarily dogmatic and theological in character. What, what I mean by dogmatic is not that he's very like, strenuous and he's emphatic about what he's believing, right? Dogmatics is a technical term in theology. It just means what the church ought to confess. Um, systematic theology, technically, is a modern term. When we think about systematic theology here today, we think about constructive work, we think about our own system of theology, trying to make ourselves consistent with the Bible, right? And so you have, like, what? Bobbing's systematic theology, or Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, or Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology. We think in terms of particular individual theologians writing a particular systematic theological text. But Bavink named his work not a systematic theology. Bavink named his work Reformed Dogmatics because he's not interested technically about getting creative. It's not about his own personal theology. When you're saying that something is dogmatics, you're talking about what the church ought to confess from the very beginning of time till the end of days. Dogmatics means the corporate Catholic confession of the faith. And again, his, his pre-Amsterdam years, that's what he was primarily focusing on. And then in the Amsterdam years, as he became a professor at this newly established university, this was primarily more so on applying that theology. It's a kind of horizontalization. Think about the before Amsterdam years as a kind of looking up, talking about God and all things in relation to God. The Amsterdam years as kind of looking horizontally, thinking about how looking at God now transforms and changes all of the different intellectual inquiries in which I find myself at the university. So that's when he started writing pieces like Christian Worldview and Christianity and Science. How Christianity provides us with a more satisfying unity for our worldview, and we'll talk about what that means, and how Christianity makes a difference in the practice of pursuing science. So in case it wasn't obvious yet, for Bobbing science, the word science does not limit itself just to the natural sciences, okay? For Boving, science, like the Dutch term Wetenschap, right, for science here that we've translated as science, refers to every higher critical inquiry, every higher critical discipline. So theology is a science because it involves higher critical inquiry. The empirical sciences is a science. Humanities, all the humanities are sciences. So history, literature, religious studies, these are all sciences for Bavink. And so because they're all sciences, this, have to do, this would have to do with public knowledge. Theology for Bavink is just as public as any other scientific discipline. So, so that's where he's transitioning then, again, in this Amsterdam years, to Christian worldview, Christianity, and science. He updates his Reformed dogmatics between 1906 to 1911 to the second edition, which is the copies that you have now um, that's available in English. And the updated version is very enlightening for us as well because he updates these Reformed dogmatics not with primarily newer theological material, but with newer sections on psychology and religious studies. He's constantly wanting to update what he said with regard to the latest, most empirical sort of studies. 1908, he published The Philosophy of Revelation, which I think is Bavink's most dense and most complicated, but also at the same time most substantive and most important work which is about the inescapably and, um, revelational character of all human existence. But he was also, at the same time, always a pastor. In 1909, he published The Wonderful Works of God, which was just handed out um, earlier on. The edition was called Our Reasonable Faith. The original um, title is actually Magnalia Dei, which is translated into Our Wonderful Works of God. And that's now available as well in English. And he published that, again, for the layperson, because he's not just interested in applying Christianity in the academy, 
is also interested in applying Christianity for the layperson. Okay, so those are his writings. Before Amsterdam, dogmatic material. After Amsterdam, applied dogmatic material. Thinking about what theology is doing in the different academic disciplines and the inescapably revelational character of all of human existence. And, and Bavink was encouraged to do this because he was part of a movement called Neo-Calvinism. Neo-Calvinism. Neo-Calvinism is not to be confused with new Calvinism. I have to say this every time. We published a, a book called Neo-Calvinism, A Theological Introduction, and we have to say that every single podcast, because oftentimes somebody is going to tell us, oh, you, you published a book called Neo-Calvinism. Do you have a chapter on Mark Driscoll? That's, that's not the material that we're talking about, okay? Um, Neo-Calvinism is an American phenomenon about primarily the late 20th century, early 21st century, which is the American revival of Calvinistic soteriology, right? It's about the doctrines of grace that's been now repopularized by figures like John Piper, yes, in the past, Mark Driscoll, John MacArthur, and Tim Keller as well, right? Neo-Calvinism, however, referred us back to the 19th century movement in the Netherlands by Abraham Kuyper and Hermann Bavink. And this term um, could refer to a myriad of different things. Um, but we have tried to really codify it into a few phrases here, a few definitions. I think of neo-Calvinism as the attempt to be both orthodox yet modern. I'm taking that from my colleague, Corey Brock, who wrote a book on Bobbing's use of Friedrich Schleiermacher called Orthodox Yet Modern. And I've already mentioned and alluded to the sense of this, right? For Herman Bobbing, to be orthodox means you have the resources to engage modernity, which means, therefore, that modernity is not an occasion for Christianity to run away from the world, but rather to re-engage it and to double down and to actually insist that the modern world is always dependent on the Christian faith. Modern people, again, are inescapably living in God's world, exposed to God's general revelation, and God's common grace. And so Bavink would oftentimes refrain, God is still sovereign today as he was back in Golgotha. God was still sovereign today as he was in the resurrection. Even though we're moving towards a more and more secularized post-Christian age, God is still continuing to do amazing works here today. And we shouldn't be surprised at this. Why? Because we're living in a time of God's common grace. This is the time of God's patience. And so this is not yet the time of God's judgment. So today, God wants us to live in a pluralistic society and to live with deep difference and to actually try to persuade within the context of deep difference. So the neo-Calvinists wanted to be engaged deeply with modernity. So we want to be orthodox and modern. And again, this is a theological conviction. This is not a liberalizing principle. This is an orthodox principle because we're drawing from the image of God, general revelation, and common grace. Okay? Now... Um, let, me, let me be even more specific, and let me draw from a forthcoming text of ours. Um, we're publishing a handbook of neo-Calvinism coming out um, early next year. Greg Parker, who's sitting right there, also contributed a chapter to it. But in the editorial introduction, we define the neo in Calvinism in two ways, um, intensively and extensively. Um, the neo is always going to refer us back to a kind of updated sort of idea. Calvinism, referring us back to the older Reform orthodoxy, and neo is a kind of updating of Calvinism. And how do we update Calvinism? Again, intensively and extensively. Intensively, Kuiper and Bobbing's immediate context was in a time of um, the 
the lowering of Christendom, and the entrance into a democratic, pluralist society. Right? And Kyber and Bavink, therefore, was in a context where they were Christians without a Christendom. They, had a, they were Christians without an established church. They, had, they were Christians while the culture around them were slowly now secularizing, right? And so what were the seculars saying at this time, right? They were saying that if we are going to be leading this nation as Christians, we're going to end up becoming intolerant people. We're going to end up not living in patience with people with different worldviews. And so therefore, we need a secular and neutral sort of state. And Bavi and Kuiper actually went into that sort of context, and they argued, no, if you want a state that actually preserves deep differences, that is actually patient with all kinds of different beliefs and different worldviews pursuing their own directions and so on, Bavi and Kuiper argued, actually, then you need Calvinists to be leaders. You need Calvinists to be those who are empowering this sorts of movement. Why? Because only in Calvinism do you have a doctrine that says that everybody is made in the image of God, no matter what you're believing in. And only Calvinism says that this is the time of God's common grace, right? And this is the context, by the way, of Kuiper's oft-quoted but rarely understood quote, every square inch belongs to Jesus Christ. Have you heard about that quote before? Right? That's always stuck in schools everywhere, and people quote it all the time. And I'm kind of assuming that if that's the only thing they're quoting, they've never actually read lectures on Calvinism from which that, took, that quote is from, because it's a very tough passage, and it's a very tough book in general. What does Kuiper mean that every square inch belongs to Jesus Christ? Here's what he means by this. If Jesus Christ is Lord, then no Christian is. Such that if Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is Lord, and Jesus Christ has determined that this is the time of God's patience, then no Christian has the right to bring about the time of God's judgment yet. And so when Kuiper was prime minister, what did he do? He actually allowed every worldview to pursue their own institutions and their own directions within those institutions, and he said the state would actually publicly fund all of these realities. So in the Netherlands, even today, you have publicly funded Christian schools next to secular schools, next to Roman Catholic schools, next to Muslim schools, next to Hindu schools. All of these are publicly funded. And why did Kuiper put it this way? Well, because he was resisting modernism and the modernist insistence that the public was the secular and the private was the religious. Kuiper refused that, and he actually argued, no, every worldview is public. And it's actually only a Christian that can recognize that, because if you're a secular governor or if you're a secular prime minister, you're going to have the inkling that every religion is really just illusory and to be dismantled and to be resisted. So a secularist cannot produce a true democracy. A secularist cannot actually sustain a pluralist nation. Only a Christian worldview can. So that's a neo. It's Calvinism without Christendom. It's Calvinism to ground a democratic society for a pluralist modern age. So they were actually arguing, again, modernity is shifting. We no longer have Christendom. And instead of saying, we got to go back to the older Christendom, actually, modernism cannot have its way without the Christian faith. Modernism cannot be sustainable without the Christian faith. So that's the intensive part. It's very specific about church-state relations. Here's the more extensive part. For Kuiper um, and, and Bavink here, the extensive sense is that here we have an opportunity, finally, to showcase that Reformed theology has truly holistic implications. That Reformed theology 
is not just a confessional theology, but it's also a whole, again, worldview, impacting not just our view of church-state relations, but also our view of philosophy, our view of religious studies, our view of humanities, our view of the natural sciences, our view of the marketplace, our view of the family, our view of absolutely everything in their own way. And this extensive sense is given to Kuiper because for them, the unbelief that we're facing is also just as holistic. It's also just as extensive. Because modern unbelief is not just saying, let's not believe in God and everything is going to stay the same. Modern unbelief, they recognize, especially in the works of Friedrich Nietzsche, was holistic in the sense that if God doesn't exist, then we have to dismantle the older way of living. We have to rethink absolutely everything from the family, the state, the church, the university, right? And that the only publicly verifiable knowledge is the empirical, and everything else is just private. Everything else is just faith, and therefore just about piety, right? So if modern unbelief is holistic, Christianity must counter that as holistically. So that's a famous line from Kuiper. Life system must be posited against life system in the lectures on Calvinism. And so Christianity presents an entirely holistic option as opposed to a holistic form of unbelief as well. Okay. And, and why does Kuiper and Bobbing think that this is a, a neo, right? This is a, this is a newer aspect that we're trying to do right now as Calvinists. Well, again, um, they argued that this is the case because of these very modern conditions that forced us to really think about not just theology as the queen of the sciences, as the apex of the sciences. For them, that's what we assumed in Christendom. That's what we assumed in the medieval church, that Christianity is just the apex of the sciences, the apex of society. But now, Christianity is no longer the apex, and in fact, Christianity is no longer relevant. So for them, the task here now is not just to show that Christian faith is the apex, it must also be the foundation for society. And in the older church, we took it for granted, but we never showed it. And now we've got to demonstrate it. We've got to demonstrate the holistic aspects of it. So intensively, right? Calvinism for a pluralist society, extensively, a holistic sort of Reformed theology. And so Kuiper and Bovink argued Reformed just refers to theology, but Calvinism is about a whole orb worldview. It's precisely to encounter the modern age. So here's what he says about um, the new modern conditions. This is the big quote in the first page that actually allowed Kuiper to think about Theology not just as one discipline among many, or the queen of the sciences, but theology as a whole, and theology as it impacts everything else. Who does he mention? He says, before Kant, theology had as little awakened to clear consciousness of itself as any other science, and much less had the position of theology in the organism of science been made clear. However much Kant and his contemporaries and followers intended injury to the Christian religion, the honor is theirs of having imparted the impetus which has enabled theology to look more satisfactorily into the deepest problems that face it. Schleiermacher has unquestionably exerted the most preponderant influence upon this resurrection of theology. This, apart from his titanic spirit, is owing more especially to the fact that in Schleiermacher, the mystic, pietistic power of the life of the emotions entered into so beautiful and harmonious a union with the new evolutions of philosophy. At however many points his foot may have slipped, and in however dangerous a manner he cut himself loose from objective revelation, Schleiermacher was nevertheless the first theologian 
in the higher scientific sense since he was the first to examine theology as a whole and to determine in his way her position in the organism of science. Okay? Notice who was he engaging with in this particular passage, right? Immanuel Kant, Enlightenment figure, Enlightenment modernist philosophy, and Schleiermacher, the so-called father of liberal theology. And notice what he's saying about them. Sure, they made mistakes. Sure, we can't follow them in every way. But notice now they've shown us that Christians everywhere need to show forth the holistic implications of theology. They are showing us that theology has to be completely redone and rethought in modern society. And now as Christians, we need to now show them an alternative. That Christianity is offering us a holistic enterprise, but not in the way in which Kant Schleiermacher thinks. Again, instead of retreating from these modern theologians and modern philosophers, they want to encounter them. They want to engage with them. And they want to continue to argue for this robust alternative within the context of dialogue and not within the context of retreat. And Kuiper, therefore, argues that the, the, the updated aspect of what they were doing with this old Reformed theology is that we have to show the position of theology, notice he says, in the organism of science. Science is a singular. Science is, is one singular unity. Science has many disciplines, but there's a unity and diversity with it. And science, therefore, in the university, needs to recognize all of the different disciplines have their place, and the natural empirical sciences are just one discipline among many. And without the Christian faith, the university is not a uni unity and diversity, but rather it's going to always go back and forth between cacophony. All the different disciplines are just working side by side, but they have nothing to do with one another, and they're offering different information, or uniformity, where one science is going to end up providing a kind of hegemonic whole that leavens everything else. This says that this is the only science that is authoritative. Everything else is just private opinion. And Kuiper and Bobbing wants to chart forward, again, a way beyond that binary, and to say, no, the Christian faith offers us a truly Catholic view of the university, that science is an organism, and in an organism, there's always a unity that animates the diversity but it doesn't eliminate the diversity. So unity is not uniformity, and the diversity is never cacophony. That's the argument that animates, by the way, Boving's Christianity and science right here. Okay? Um, I'd actually like to pause now for questions, because I'd, I'd rather us you know, be in the same pace before I just move on. Any questions at this point? I want to treat it more like a class, rather than just monologuing for 75 minutes. Go ahead. How much time do I have? It's good, 5.39. Hello, okay. Um, so just to clarify, are you saying that during this time of Bob Vink that he's basically creating the argument that at that time, the neo-Calvinistic Right, neo-Calvinistic yeah, neo neo approaches, giving the argument that instead of theology being just a part of the general science, a private academia affair yeah. that is limited to a higher apex of understanding that only those who spend this devoted amount of time in this small circle uh -huh. can understand. They're trying to say that Christianity and theology at large is not only 
um, a part of the science, a study, but it's also the foundation. Yes. It's a holistic approach to the Christian, not even the yes. Christian, but the whole worldview in general. Is that? Yes, that's right. And it can therefore offer a more satisfying organizing principle for the university itself. Okay. The Unity University model. Yeah. Alrighty, perfect. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Uh, Joseph Randall, Oni Baptist Church. Hey. Um, so you, you, the, the, the Jesus is Lord of every square inch quotation yes. um, means that every Christian is not Lord. Yes. Jesus is Lord. Yes. Help me understand how that would, would mean so Jesus is Lord so we can have Muslim schools. Why, why wouldn't the conclusion be Jesus is Lord so we ain't having Muslim schools. We're only teaching about Christ because he's Lord. Um, yeah, we've got to make a distinction between church and state for Kuiper, right? So the church has to proclaim that Jesus is Lord in that way, normatively, persuasively. And in fact, um, every Christian needs to do that, right? But the state for Kuiper, and this is maybe getting into the realm of Kuiper's political theology, is an agent of common grace, not an agent of special grace. And so Kuiper argues that the state is a function of this particular redemptive historical period, it's not going to last until the last day because then the last day will have a theocracy. But today, the church's responsibility as a pilgrim people in the wilderness is to actually proclaim the gospel in the context of deep diversity. And so Kuiper, as a Christian prime minister, therefore argues that if I were now enforcing the true religion by way of the sword, I'd be overreaching my eschatology. I'd be overreaching the end times. And Jesus is Lord in the sense that, therefore, Jesus determines the time of today. What does today mean? And today is the time of patience. And so how do we try to talk with our Muslim neighbor? Not by casting them out, like the old Christian the model, but rather by persuasion. That's what he's going to try to argue. Good. Thank you. Okay. We're all sort of on the same page. We're going to go to Christianity and science now. Everybody okay? All right. Um, excellent. Okay. Christianity and science. Again, this got, there are a lot of quotes here. I'll try to move more quickly through this material because... I've given you the big picture of what neo-Calvinism is, but now we're going to talk through some of these arguments in Christianity and science. Okay, so if you open up Christianity and science, like you open up Christian worldview, immediately the aesthetic is going to deceive because this is such a small, attractive book. It looks great on my coffee table. In fact, the first ever Amazon review that we received said, I bought this book because of its aesthetics. <laughs> I will never read it. Looks pretty easy, though. And um, whoever reviewed this book, um, because you never read it, would think that it's probably going to be pretty easy, right? It's very attractive. But then when you actually open it up, it's actually pretty dense. It's not exactly, you know, Sunday afternoon, lazy reading. It's going to be more so early morning, caffeinated. You need to really focus. So I want to just run us through some of the arguments that he's offering in the book. Not everything, because it is, again, a very dense book. There's lots of different arguments there in the book, lots of different directions where we can, we can take it. But let me just offer here four different observations. The first two are really quick, and then the last two will be a little bit more specific. So the first two um, has explicit reasons for writing this book, and also has Augustinian precedence for this book, he argues. And then the last two why scientism cannot work, what he calls positivism, is actually scientism, the idea that the only public knowledge must be traceable back to sense perception, and how Christianity actually does justice to how we know. Okay, so first two, a bit more quickly. Why did Bavink write Christianity in Science? Why did he want to write an account of how Christianity um, leavens all of the different 
academic inquiries and all the different sciences, therefore. And by the way, the original Dutch term is technically Christian science, but we can't translate it that way because there's a cult, right? And so we, um, I don't want us to be confused that Bobbing was an advocate of Christian science, no. Um, so we had to translate and modify it as Christianity and science for reasons. He argues, well, first, we need a Christian university for the modern age. That's the first reason. That's the most obvious reason. So again, this is a kind of impetus for the Free University of Amsterdam that Abraham Kuyper founded. Second, we needed an alternative to Roman Catholic higher education. So this is a Protestant work in his own imagination. And Roman Catholic higher education for Bavink has been way more advanced, way more sophisticated than Protestants at that particular point in time. And even in some ways continues to be true today. Roman Catholic universities seem to be more intellectually robust than our Protestant counterparts. And Bobbing is saying here, we need a Protestant alternative that can match what the Roman Catholics are doing. While we're learning from them, we're also creating an alternative from them. Third, he's also arguing that the university is showing us the demise of radical empiricism, or what I've called scientism, and what Bobbing calls positivism. People are now starting to realize, and maybe Bobbing was a little bit too quick to say this, that knowledge is not limitable, to what we know by sense perception, that knowledge goes beyond that, and that we cannot um, limit knowledge by way of saying the only thing that is public is that which is traceable back to sense perception. And finally, he argues that religion ultimately is persistent despite secularization, despite modernity. Um, Buddhism, Islam is growing everywhere. He's observing in 1904. And so Christianity has a place alongside these major world religions to offer an account of the unifying worldview that can, can, can actually provide us with something more satisfying intellectually and more satisfying existentially. Second observation, he argues that Christian science or the endeavor of providing a Christian model of science was not just started by him and Kuiper. For Bavink, there was an Augustinian precedent for this endeavor of Christian science. Um, and in fact, he argues that the longing for a Christian science, to, for a unified Christian account of all higher disciplines, was actually started by the authors of the New Testament themselves, by way of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, talking about how all things are united together in Christ Jesus, let's say in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And therefore, every Christian exposed to the New Testament will always try to give an account of that reality, trying to demonstrate it, trying to vindicate it, trying to actually show it to be the case. And before Augustine, he argued, there were two opposing extremes that battled for a definition of Christian science. The first is who he calls the North African school, represented by Tertullian, the church father. And Tertullian was the one who was famous for saying, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? You've heard about the saying before. In other words, what does Christian faith, what does revelation, what does the Bible have to do with philosophy out there? The Bible is God's revelation. It's enough. It's got nothing to do with unbelieving wisdom out there. And so if I've got the Bible, I don't need to learn from them. I don't need to engage. I've got everything that i got right here. I've got everything that I need right here. Um, Tertullian was apparently so emphatic about this and so consistent with this that he actually argued that Christians back in the day had their own distinct way of dress. Um, the Greeks wore the toga. The Christian had their form of the toga, which was not like the Greeks. And actually... When you take a look at the picture of Tertullian's version of the toga, which is so-called Christian dress, and in the toga itself, they both look incredibly Greek. Um, and that's supposed to be funny, and you guys didn't laugh, but that's all right. Um, <laughs> but that, that's, that's indicating 
the naivete of Tertullian. We will always be contextualized people, part of our time and our culture. And even though Tertullian thinks he's being purely biblical by having his own way of dress, that way of dress was very much still a Greco-Roman way of dressing. And so what Bavink would say to this too is that biblicism is ultimately not only naive, it's also impossible. You're always learning things from the world. You're always coming as a finite creature, and you're always coming to the text, therefore, with your own questions and assumptions. And yes, you need to be self-critical about that, but, but notice you're always, therefore, engaged with the modern world, whether you like it or not. So biblicism is not only naive, it's also impossible. And also, thirdly, right, biblicism, per Bavink, is to refuse the riches of God's general revelation and common grace outside of the church. Unbelievers continue to be made in the image of God. And unbelievers continue to be good, continue to live on borrowed capital, yes, but they have moral, epistemic, life-giving gifts from God's common grace, which means they could oftentimes teach the church, even as we're teaching them. Because why? They're always better than what they claim to be. Because they're always imaging the very God that they're denying. So because of Romans 1 and general revelation and the image of God, there's always this dynamic with the non-believer of them knowing yet not knowing, right? And so Bavink is saying this is our point of contact. Grace restores nature, and special revelation presupposes general revelation and always has a point of contact, always has a touch point with nature itself. Okay, so that's the first view, the North African school represented by Tertullian. And then against, on the other side, Against this North African school is what he calls the Alexandrian school, represented by teachers like Clement of Alexandria and Origen, church fathers again before Augustine. And if the Tertullian view is to say Christianity has nothing to do with the quote-unquote pagan, the world outside of the church, right? This is the kind of opposite. In this school, Christianity is seen to be anticipated by and organically more connected to one particular philosophy. So in this view, there's a kind of synthesis model. They would argue, actually, in this particular context, that the pagan philosophy that's actually most naturally connected to Christianity was probably Plato. In fact, some of these figures, Bavi would observe, would say that Plato must have been reading Moses and Jesus, or Jesus must have reading Plato. Somewhere there was some kind of connection. And Jesus is saying that if the Tertullian view is world flight, the kind of fundamentalist principle, the Alexandrian school is world conformity, a liberalizing principle. Why? Because now Christianity is seen to be anticipated by one particular philosophy, and Christianity and that philosophy has to be synthesized together. And he's seeing a kind of similar pattern between what he sees in some of these church fathers that say Christianity has to be wedded with Plato, with people in the modern age who say something like Christianity has to be wedded with Darwinism or modernism of whatever form, or the enlightenment of whatever form, right? So neither world flight, Tertullian, nor world conformity. So here's what he says about this Alexandrian school. This is page 54 of Christian, Christian science, Christianity and science. I gotta get used to the English title. Pagan philosophy became so highly elevated as the fruit of the logos that it came close to being deemed part of Christianity itself. And on the other hand, especially through the allegorical interpretation of scripture, Christian truth became so generalized that it could be joined harmonistically to pagan wisdom. So now, Bavink here is saying that here they are confusing general revelation with one particular philosophy as if that particular philosophy is a codification of general revelation. 
as if that particular philosophy is the natural philosophy, and therefore the perennial handmaiden for Christianity. No, Bavinck is always going to argue, general revelation is always only groped upon and grasped on by non-believers. There is no one philosophical system outside of Christianity that encompasses general revelation. So we always have to make a distinction. And he's always going to be careful uh, with those who say, well, you got to follow the results of this or that philosophy because aren't we followers of nature? Aren't we followers of general revelation? For Bobbing, general revelation is one thing, and our reception of general revelation is always another. So he would be very critical of just synthesizing Christianity with Platonism or Darwinism or whatever else. So actually, that's the second observation in your notes. The first observation as well is that for Bobbing, the Alexandrian school, if true, would be colonialistic. Because you're saying one particular philosopher in one particular era is the more congenial, natural anticipator of Christianity. But general revelation is universal. And general revelation is not limited, not capturable by one particular philosopher. If general revelation is true, then every philosophy in every culture in different times and places will echo different truths of the Christian God will echo different truths that Christianity will always have to wrestle with, that Christianity will always have a finite point of contact with, and also criticize at the same time. So if you follow this Alexandrian method of just wedding Christianity to one particular philosophy, then you're actually saying Christianity is limited to one culture, limited to one philosophical handmaiden. No, Christianity, he's going to argue, has a point of contact, even not just in Plato or Aristotle, but even in Kant, Schleiermacher, Descartes, Hume, whoever it is that we're talking about, there's always going to be something there in their particular philosophy that's always going to echo back truths from the Christian faith that actually belong better in the Christian faith. So his alternative to both of these polarities would be what I call reform eclecticism. Eclecticism. This idea that non-believing worldviews each have different points of contacts and different tension points with Christianity, and Christianity has to test each one of them and also at the same time take up each one of them in different ways, right? Um, Tim Keller talked about this oftentimes, right? So here in the West, for, in, for instance, because of the Enlightenment and post-modernity and late modernity, there's a point of contact between the Western emphasis on toleration and justice with the Christian faith, at least formally speaking. The point of tension, however, is in our sexual ethics, right? We don't want the Christian sexual ethics, but we want, you know, the Christian idea of forgiveness. That's a good thing because I want to forgive people. That's good. Turn the other cheek. Never resort to violence, right? But actually, where I come from in Jakarta, Indonesia, it's the opposite. Sexual ethics is natural law. The Christian view of sexual ethics is so much in common with Muslims and Confucianists in the Chinese Indonesian context, right, that they're very thankful that Christians affirm that same-sex marriage is wrong. They're very thankful that Christianity loves the family and wants to prioritize the family, for instance. Where are they going to have an issue with Christianity? In our ethic of forgiveness. In fact, the temptation in the context of Jakarta is to be more harsh to those who are struggling with same-sex attraction, to be more harsh to those who are struggling with this or that taboo sort of reality, right? And so what accounts for that? Why is it that non-believers in the West and non-believers in the East actually look and sound very different? And if you say that Christianity has a more organic home to the East or the West, notice how you're limiting God's revelation. And notice how you're, you're therefore lessening the universality, the Catholicity of the Christian faith, okay? So eclecticism is the way to go. And he says, who's the father of that? Well, Augustine. 
I know it's kind of cliche, everybody wants Augustine on their side. If Augustine's not on your side, you're probably doing something wrong. But here's what he says. According to the words of Paul, everything here has to be tested, but only that which was good retained. For this reason, they loved the image that the people of God were allowed to enrich themselves with the treasures of Egypt. And Solomon was allowed to construct his temple with the help of the builders of Hiram and the cedars of Lebanon. It was particularly Augustine who so precisely identified the path to be followed and thereby drew the baselines for a Christian practice of science, right? So in other words, we can take up the raw materials from their temples and use the same materials to construct our own temple for the living God. Learn from them. There are tools to be found, and then use them, redefine them, yes, recontextualize them, but show them that these terms and these tools that you found so helpful don't actually make sense in a lot of your worldview. They make sense in a lot of mine. You care about justice, that makes sense in light of the Christian faith. You care about forgiveness, that makes sense in light of the Christian faith. You care about judgment, that makes sense in light of the Christian faith. Whatever it might be, whatever um, idea that is resident in some non-Christian philosophy, Christianity makes for a better home for it. And so this allows Bobbing to become incredibly open-minded without sacrificing a commitment to the truth. Because we're tempted in one way or the other. We're so open-minded, we're pliable, we can't even discern. Let's just accept everything, which is naive, as I try to show in today's sermon. Or, on the other hand, we're so judgmental that we're so closed off, we're like Tertullian, not realizing that we, too, are modern people, whether we like it or not. You've been shaped by the modern world, and so you better be conscious of it and not think of yourself as purely biblical. And therefore, because you acknowledge that you're not purely biblical, you can bring your own um, judgments alongside the Bible and let yourself be tested by way of the Bible. And that's the eclectic approach. So that's the precedence for a Christian science. Why can we have a Christian science? Because Christianity is so Catholic that we can learn from absolutely everyone without jeopardizing a commitment to the truth. Okay, third reality, and then fourth thing. Do we have time? We have time, right? Blame Isaac. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not going easy on you. All right. Um, the failure of positivism. Um, Positivism, again, is a form of scientism. What is scientism? Scientism is the idea, again, that no knowledge is public, no knowledge is verifiable, until and unless it is traceable back to sense perception or sense phenomena. In other words, if some idea that you have is not traceable back to something that you can touch, feel, taste, hear, then it's not something to be believed. So here's how Bobbing himself defines it. Humanity should thus limit itself to the study of sense-perceptible phenomena. And the highest goal it must set for itself is to become acquainted with these phenomena and their mutual connectedness and to trace the laws that govern their simultaneity and succession. So if you are a positivist or if you're a scientist, um, scientistic-minded per uh, person, Bobbing is arguing here, you're going to end up reducing all science to just the empirical sciences. That's the only form of science that's truly knowable, verifiable, and therefore actually public. Here's the problem with that sort of worldview. Here's the problem with that sort of epistemology. First, it smuggles in philosophical presuppositions that are themselves not established by sense perception. He says positivism, or scientism, is a specific philosophy, and like any other, proceeds on the basis of certain metaphysical assumptions. What are some of those assumptions? Well, he says, first, the first philosophical principle, then, is this, that our knowledge flows out of nothing 
other than sense perception and experience. This is a philosophical thesis and not one that is self-evident or clear as day. In other words, not one that is itself empirically verifiable. You see what he's doing there? He's saying, okay, you're telling me that the only thing that is believable, the only thing that is trusted, are those pieces of information that we can justify by means of sense perception. But don't you notice that that very proposition, the only things that we can know are by sense perception, is itself not justified by sense perception? You see how it's therefore self-refuting? Okay, let me, let me say that again. The proposition, all that I know, are those things traceable back to sense perception, is itself not traceable back to sense perception. There is nothing in the world that you can touch or feel or sense that can tell you this all-encompassing epistemological norm that says that only sense perception is to be trusted. Okay, you see that? Okay, great. I, I think you're seeing it, but I'm not sure. Maybe it's also 6 p.m. Um, okay, all right. I think you're seeing it. So in other words, scientism is self-refuting. Bobbing here is actually anticipating planning this argument in 2012 and where the conflict really lies, where Planning argues, right, that, again, the thesis that all that you know is that, that which is based on the empirical sciences is itself not a result of the empirical sciences. And so it's self-refuting. You can't have it. So that's the first thing. You're assuming an epistemological principle that is itself not verifiable. And he also goes on that those who presume on the reliability of sense perception has to trust that there is in fact, a reliability there, that you can know the world. Here's what he says. All scientific research assumes in advance and without proof the reliability of the sense and the objectivity of the perceivable world. The reality of the world outside us is fixed and for faith. After all, he says, the outside world is given to us in our psychical representations. We're not able to compare these with the outside world itself and cannot withdraw from ourselves. We must simply believe that in these representations, a real knowledge of the world is offered to us. If scientism says that all knowledge must be traceable back to sense perception, you're actually smuggling in an assumption about the intelligibility of the world and the conformity of our mind with the world. Have you ever noticed how weird it is that our minds actually correspond to the world outside of us? Okay, think about your knowledge of a pen. The idea in your mind of the pen is radically different from pens themselves. Right? The idea of the pen in your mind is mental. It has no dimensions. It's an abstract pen. You can switch its colors around. Right? It's just in your mind, and it's therefore really radically distinct from this physical reality of the pen itself outside of you. The physical pen outside of you is physical. It's made of wood. It's made of all these different things. Right? And yet the idea in your mind is a spiritual representation, he says, of the pen. How is there a correspondence between the ideas within our mind on the one hand, which are one thing, they're mental, and the physical reality outside of us? Boving argues these are two different realities, and yet you have faith that there is a correspondence between the two. Where does that correspondence come from? And why do you assume that there is one in the first place, and that the universe is conformable to the mental representations within us? Okay, let's move on. So the scientific world always will assume certain philosophical assumptions. Second thing um, the, the, scientists, the scientific um, worldview needs to recognize 
is that it fails to do justice, to, again, to how humans know. Humans don't just rely on perception, sense perception. Humans also rely on the concepts within our mind, and that our mind actually comes hardwired with concepts, again, and representations, not just of sensible reality, but also of immaterial realities that we cannot live without. So here's what he says. In the first place, there must be a person who perceives, and what and how he perceives depends on his circumstances. Indeed, he says, it is not the eye or the ear that perceives, but the person who sees through the eye and hears through the ear. Perception, he says, again, is a cyclical activity, not a passive state, but a positive or active action by which the subject makes its influence felt. All our words are in names of objects that are not susceptible to perception. We do not perceive a dog or a chair, but combine various perceptions into a single representation, which we express in the name dog or chair. Let's go on. He says, people do not want only to consider the psychological process of these representations. Rather, through and from these representations, they also want to become acquainted with the material world. The same applies to those representations that do not refer to a sensory nature. They too refer to reality, but of a spiritual rather than a sensory nature. In our consciousness, we find impressions, perceptions, representations, and so on that point to a realm of the true, the good, and the beautiful. Okay, here's what he's saying. He's saying, scientism doesn't do justice to the way in which humans know, normally speaking. Humans don't limit what we know to what we know by way of sense. Rather, the mind is constantly active, right? You're not just perceiving dogs and chairs, he's saying. You're perceiving various representations of the dog. Think about what you're actually seeing when you're sensing a particular dog. You're seeing various features, its hair, its nose, its eyes, its four legs, its wagging the tail, right? And you're saying to yourself, this is actually a unity. This is not just a diversity of different sorts of disparate phenomena that are unconnected from one another. This is a particular unity, namely a dog. And when I'm talking about a dog, there's a substance dogginess that is bearing all of these different qualities as one whole. But technically speaking, he's saying sense perception is giving you a disparate and numerous amount of phenomena that you're always unifying and you're never therefore passive, he says. You're always knowing things actively. You're imbuing things by way of your own cyclical knowing. Okay, so when he talks about cyclical knowledge there, don't think about psychology in the modern sense, like Freud, right? Think about cyclical from the Greek term suke, which just means soul. Your soul is actively doing things, right? When you're talking to a person, more obviously, when I'm talking to Raymond, right, I'm sensing his face, and notice my sense perception is just saying, well, you know, the angle of his lips are moving upwards or lower. But notice, the human mind doesn't say upper, lower, right? No, we don't do that. They're like, no, he's happy. He is sensing something. He's thinking about a thought. He is a person. So that when we're coming across somebody, we're never just taking them as material of sense perception, but rather we're coming to them as united people, and therefore our minds are actually constantly processing things. And again, Scientism doesn't do justice to those things. And not only does the mind, right, perceive all of us as singular wholes, unities that hold together all of these perceptible phenomena in one, the human mind also comes up not just of representations of united people or united things in front of us, we also have concepts and representations of immaterial reality. 
when I see Raymond and he's smiling, I think to myself, he's thinking about something beautiful. What is beauty? When I'm focusing on the sciences, I think to myself, I better focus on this research and not that research because this is important. What is importance? What is um, that which is significant? What is that which is pointing me to the good, the true, and the beautiful? Why do I have all of these cyclical representations, Bobbing says, of not just of things as united wholes, but also of realities that don't have any sense-perceptible thing to which they correspond, but realities that norm me nonetheless. Laws of thought that tell me I'm not thinking properly. Laws of beauty that tell me I'm not drawing this properly. Laws of significance and importance that tell me I'm not focusing on the right details, I should turn my attention to this or that instead, right? And all of these realities, Bobbing is arguing, point us back to the immaterial realm that actually guides every single discipline before us, okay? Um, we're running out of time, so let me just turn to the final quote here toward a Christian worldview. And here's where Christianity is a blessing for the sciences. If scientism smuggles in philosophical assumptions that they haven't justified by way of sense and also doesn't do justice to the way in which human beings know, what does the Christian worldview offer? And here, um, you're going to get a very important line from the Christian worldview, not Christianity and science, where he talks about the benefits and the process of forming a Christian worldview. Here's what he says. Just as sense perception is the basis of all science, the results of science are and remain the starting point of philosophy. Yet it is incorrect that philosophy should be no more than the summary of the results of the various sciences, and that they should be set together only as the wheels of a clock. Wisdom is grounded on science, but it's not limited to it. It aims above science and seeks to press through the first principles. It already does this if it makes a special group of phenomena, religion, ethics, law, history, language, culture, and so on, into the object of its reflection and tries to trace the leading ideas. But it does this above all as it seeks for the final grounds of all things and builds a worldview thereon. If this is the nature and task of philosophy, then it is presupposed to an even greater degree than sense perception and science that the world rests in thought and that ideas control all things. There is no wisdom other than that which is in and out of the faith in a realm of unseen and eternal things. It is built on the reality of ideas because it is the science of the idea and because it seeks the idea of the whole in the parts and of the general in the particular. It tacitly proceeds from the Christian faith which states that the world is grounded in wisdom in its whole and all of its parts. Okay, notice here three important terms from that first paragraph. Science, philosophy, and then first principles. Science, philosophy, and first principles. Okay. Um, what makes um, science different than a philosophy? What makes normal knowing different from wisdom? What makes you wise? Well, Boving says, right, Temporally speaking, we all do start with sense perception, and that's fine. That's normal. Everyone has to start with what we can take for granted in normal experience in front of us. But notice, from sense perception, we can develop a science, because in sense perception, we see and codify things in front of us. We catalog them, we codify them, and then we form all the different scientific disciplines on the basis of what we see by way of sense perception. But philosophy and wisdom is not satisfied with the collection and collation of data in the scientific disciplines. You're not yet wise when you do that. 
In fact, the accumulation of data is different from a worldview. And if you follow philosophy and wisdom, only then can you get to the worldview. Why? A worldview is not just, he says, a collection, again, of all these data, but rather you want to trace the leading ideas in all these different scientific disciplines. And once you trace the leading ideas in all these different scientific disciplines, you're going to get to what he calls first principles. First principles. In other words, the normal scientific person catalogs different ideas in all the different disciplines, and that's kind of like forming an encyclopedia. But wisdom demands that we try to trace out the unity between these different disciplines. You're not just satisfied with the data of history or the data of law or the data of the natural sciences. You want to say, what are the leading ideas therein? And actually, when you start to do that, as you are guided by philosophy and wisdom, you're going to see first principles behind all of these different disciplines. Okay, what do I mean by this? Notice how when you're writing a history book, right, say you're writing a history of, uh, again, Raymond, his biography. Um, Raymond was born in a particular year, uh, I'm assuming, I don't know, you know, sometime in the 1980s or something, right? Um, you're not going to be cataloging how many trees there were in Alabama where he was born. Is that right? Louisiana. Louisiana. Okay, I'm sorry. All right, Louisiana, where he was born. Like, that's besides the point, right? In other words, you're going to see that if you're going to write a biography of someone, it's not the trees that were there that's really important or how many grains of sand were in the playground that he was playing in. Rather, you're going to talk about what? His great-grandparents, his grandparents, his parents, and then himself, and then you're going to talk about ideas that formed him, communities and people that formed him, right? The worldviews that formed him and so on. So when you're writing a history book, the history of a nation, for instance, you're not just interested in the objects within the nation, you're also thinking about the people and the events of that people that motivated this nation to go in that or this or that direction, right? So in other words, when you're taking a look at a history, you're actually motivated by, and you're assuming, and you're implicitly already saying that it's people made in the image of God that moves alongside history. And when you're studying the sciences, you recognize that when you're studying the human being, you're studying them as different than just any other animal, though I think that's being resisted more and more today, right? When you're thinking about law and jurisprudence and literature, you're studying literature by men and women, and you're doing law, you're caring about justice and principles. So in other words, in all these different disciplines Boving is recognizing, you're constantly going to be exposed to judgments of importance, significance, image of God, and ultimately, all of that points to the first principles of the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're focusing on these realities because it is good to do so. You're wanting to say these things about this history because it is true to say that. And notice you're constantly making evaluative judgments that go way beyond sense perception when you're doing all these things, right? And so, actually, underneath all of these scientific disciplines are ideas and realities that are immaterial that, once again, guide absolutely everything that you're doing. And if you take away the first principles of the good and the true and beautiful, all of the sciences are just kind of floating and hovering without any grounding. And the question is, right, who is the bearer of the good and the true and the beautiful? Why is it that in every single one of these academic disciplines you can't help it but focus on ideas, focusing on justice, focusing on the good, focusing on that which is important, which is human history and things like that? Why do we can't help it but come back to these leading principles? Why? Because again, Bavink would argue, you're tacitly moving from a Christian worldview. 
Because before creation, there was the logos, and before creation, there were ideas. And Hebrews 11 tells us that the material world came from an immaterial reality, namely God. And it is by faith that we understood that the world was made by way of the Word of God that orders all things. And because we're image bearers, we're in contact with ideas that are not sense perceptible, but yet at the same time, norm everything that we do. So without Christianity, there is no university. And without Christianity, there is no worldview because there is no unifying reality. You just have disparate phenomena that you can't account for. So I encourage you to pick up the book, and hopefully that would be a good taster of what's to come when you do read it. Thank you. Sure. Uh, how can we utilize flawed common grace insights of unbelievers without being shaped by the sinful elements of those assumptions? Can we ever be confident enough as normal members of our churches yeah. and our knowledge of Scripture to filter out those elements, or how do we employ those as, as believers? And allow that yeah, to that's a great question. Um, my short answer to that is this is where church history and the creeds and confessions of our church are incredibly important. Because you never know that you're situated and conditioned unless you zoom out of your own culture. And the creeds and confessions are crafted and mined and tried and tested across generations from generations from different places and different times so that when you're actually taking a look at what they were saying, if you've never found that important, maybe you are parochial. And if you are challenged by what they're saying, maybe that's actually revealing something about yourself. And if you're therefore learning from the common grace and sense of culture, and you're saying something that has never been confessed by the church, then maybe you should abandon the path and actually come back to the global Catholic church. So, creeds and confessions. Do you know yeah. anyone who's employing Bobby's uh, vision of higher education or just education in general in a way that you take is being done well because of how politicized it is, particularly in the West? Yeah. It seems like all of the ideas or even approaches to what we call Christian education right. are, are very parochial. Yeah, I think, I think what passes by as, as Christian education right now in terms of Bobbing's um, taxonomy would be really Tertullian's model or Clement's model, right? When you say Christian education, you mean, I'm thinking anything from private Christian education yeah. homeschool. Yeah, right. So I think the temptation is always going to be world flight or world conformity, Tertullian or Clement, and Bobbing's own taxonomy. I'm not saying he read them exactly you know, as they actually said things, but in his own mind, Tertullian and, and Clement will be the archetypes that are constantly going to tempt us today. Um, and I think, you know, in our condition today, think about whether or not we are saying, you know, um, let's just run away from the world and retreat, or are we just going to conform with the world? And I think the, the temptation of Christian education is always those two things. Yeah. All right, and final one, and then I'll open it in the room, and I might come back with more questions. Sure. Uh, the average person kind of wading into bobbing, so there, there are a lot of deep ideas here. Right. But there are also a lot of just members of churches here. And there's yeah. Some, okay, I'm really interested by the ideas of this lecture, but I don't think I can read that blue book, even though I actually had somebody tell me, like, I almost bought that because it looked pretty. They literally texted me after you said Yeah, that. yeah, well, um, I will also encourage you that this is, this is still actually much easier than Christian worldview. It's a stocking stuff. If you want okay. a pretty book, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, it's more accessible than you think. Maybe, you know, Christian worldview is a bit harder, well, but yeah. What would you recommend? Are there articles or blog posts or even is it, you know, uh, wonderful works? How would you tell people to weigh in and begin to, to think deeply along the lines of yeah, one, one of the beneficial things about Boving is that he's very realistic about this. And, and 
this is another thread in the book, and if you want to hear more about this particular th thread, listen to Corey Brock, who's a friend of mine, and we translated this book together along with James Eglinton, and he gave a lecture at RTSDC, um, and he, he talked about another thread in the book, which is about the limits of scientific knowing, and the limits of scientific knowing is that science always proceeds from life, and science is support, supposed to support the pre-existing the pre life. So in other words, not everybody is called to be a scientist, but if a scientist is doing their work properly, scientists in the broad sense, then it shouldn't undermine common life, it should support common life. And so Boving is actually recognizing that, that normal, everyday folks, all of us, right, we're always actually taking all these ideas for granted, even if you're not thinking scientifically about it, so you don't have to be discouraged. And in fact, not everybody needs as called to do this. And when the scientism is trying to say, well, the normal people don't know anything, that's when science has gone awry, science has gone too far, because life precedes scientific knowing. But good. yeah, good. Right, Andrew. And then if you have another question, go ahead and move to one of the microphones for us. That'd be helpful. Hey. Oh, thanks. Um, and my aim here is to help someone in the congregation pour their life into priority or how to preach it from the pulpit. Right. I'm thinking of things like ethics and law. Yeah. So big things. So a couple issues come to mind. Preborn preborn babies slaughtered. War's pretty rough. Right. So so okay, uh, loss of life sounds like the weightiness is is Christian. It comes from yeah. right. So yeah. what you said earlier, you know, Bavink is good with proclaim the church's responsibility, proclaim the gospel. Right. The Christian responsibility. So we're that's the foundational. Sure. So now I'm thinking of these things. Yeah. And, um, you know, what do you preach from the pulpit? Where do believers go? So, for example, an Anabaptist saying, look, don't join the service. Quicker to the question, though, so we have Really important. And um, someone else will say, no, serve, it, serve for God. And preborn babies, do you really push for uh, 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 the, the law? to smash it out kind of thing. You know, it affects what you fight for. Sure. And so how do you, how do you, how do you prioritize? prioritize? Yeah, I, I think, so I'll, 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 I'll mention a preface and then I'll talk about uh, hopefully a preliminary response to what you're asking. First, one of the things that Kyber and Bobbing recognizes is the finitude of the human being. Um, the church is not the state and the state is not the church because the state is not competent to t tell the church and tell the world what is true religion. One of their traumas is actually the Dutch Reformed Church was an established church, so it was connected to the church, kind of like the Church of England, right? And so um, the reason why the Dutch Reformed Church became liberal was because the state became liberal, and so the whole church went with it. And so they argued that having a free church gives you, the theologians, the true reign over the church, the preachers, the true reign, the pastors, the true reign over the church, and not um, state leaders were not competent. And vice versa, that oftentimes church leaders are not statesmen because there's just different dynamics there that we don't fully understand. We're not competent enough, and so we should trust Christian leaders. And so when you are, um, let's say, like Kuiper, have an opportunity for a Christian prime minister, we're not saying be passive, right? But if you're a Christian politician, you are informed by the Bible. You're informed by natural law, for instance. And so you want to um, make it so that society would actually legislate and inform, enforce these things. But it's, the question is, how do you do it? Um, and for Kuiper and Bavin, you have to do it within the means of democracy and not by way of enforcing the old Christendom model. Um, so still, yes, absolutely, be active. But again, how do you do it? Is it by way of persuasion? 
and therefore that persuasion leads to representation, that representation leads to voting, voting leads to policy changes, or is it by way of revolution, which is a pining for the past and therefore not actually going along with the current democratic process and therefore living with deep differences. So it's, there's no passivity that we're advocating here, if that's what you're asking. Thanks. Uh, yeah, thank you, Dr. Stanton, uh, Maxwell, and I'm a member here at Christchurch Westchester. Um, could you speak a little bit to uh, Boving's articulation of the relationship between immaterial concepts and their physical instantiations or their presence in the human mind? Do they have their own individual subsistence that's patterned after divine ideas? How might yeah. you think about that? The latter, pattern after divine ideas. And so the ideas and the universals that we text within our minds that point us to the good and the truth, the beautiful, they're always ectypal for Boving and therefore an imprint of God's own divine ideas. And we have no access to those divine ideas except by way of analogy. Because if we know those things univocally, then you would be God, then you would know God the way that God knows God, right? So all of our ideas here are patterned after God, and so we think God's thoughts after him, as Boving would say. Yeah, good question. Hi, Shannon, hey. uh, member at City Light Church Center City. Um, as a professor of a natural science in a secular university, I'm intrigued by Bavink's interaction with modernity yeah. and also his move to an advocacy for a Christian university. Right. So what are some of the potential applications for Christians today in choosing to engage as students or instructors in secular institutions? That's, that's a great question, and I would say, you know, it's a case-by-case -case basis. One of the, again, benefits of, of what Bobbing is trying to do is to say the empirical sciences and the natural sciences have their place, but when it becomes a whole epistemology and therefore a unif uniformizing and hegemonic principle, that's when it's, it's gone past its boundaries. So I think Christians have a lot to offer in saying, can we be the more capacious knowers in the context of the university, where I think in the university since now, we're tempted towards a kind of hegemony, saying, you know, you know, whether it's the late modern idea that all truth is just really veiling power struggles and power claims, or scientism that says that the only sort of knowledge that is verifiable is, you know, that which is empirically verifiable. Like, can Christians be the ones to say, I can learn from all these different disciplines and I don't, I don't need to be anxious about it, that I can see the limitations of each. Why? Because God has told me that the world that he's made is diverse and that there's a unity in the diversity but it takes a long time for me to see that. And one of the benefits of Bobbing's understanding of worldview is that it's not a weapon for him. It's not as if I have a Christian worldview, you don't, ha, I destroy you, right? Which is the way in which we oftentimes talk about it. But Christian worldview is something objective, something um, that is outside of us because it's God's perspective of things, and therefore it requires um, scientists and Christian scientists um, and, and all kinds of different disciplines to come together and collaborate so that we can actually fill out what a holistic worldview actually looks like, so that no one person has a Christian worldview, but a Christian worldview can animate um, every subject to start to fill that out. So we, we try to compare a Christian worldview with map making as a process, and so the natural scientist has a role in making you know, the parts of the map. Um, the historian has a role in forming parts of the map, but the, the theologian and the religion, um, religious departments have the role in showing us the boundaries of the map and where things belong. Um, but everybody has a role to play. And again, I, I would hope that if you're a Christian, you're engaged in higher education, there's that poise, there's that calm, 
and also at the same time, therefore, a reminder to everyone that they're finite and that we need one another to know. And what they're actually doing is being quite tyrannical when they're saying, no, this is, this is all that we can know. That's a great question, though. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't know I'm going to do this, and I hope she forgives me later. But Kate, I want you to go to that microphone and ask the question you asked over lunch. That was really useful. So you're going to go over there. And I think it would be useful for the room. And I'm sorry. Okay. Hi. Um, hey, Kate, Kate. I'm a member of this church. Um, so the question that I asked earlier at lunch was how Bavink um, and, by extension, Abraham Kuyper would respond to um, the deconstructionism that's going on in society, the collapsing of boundaries and categories. And you ask that because of why? Uh, because I'm an English PhD student and working in the humanities. That's all we're doing right now. So. Yeah, that's great. Um, and, and what I said to Kate, if I can be as eloquent now as I, I was seven hours ago, <laughs> is... Um, so don't mess this up. Uh, that's right. That's right. Um, no, what I said to her is um, the deconstructionism of late modernity is only ever selectively deconstructive. In other words, they're deconstructing some things, but they're actually replacing those things with another analytical grid through which they're interpreting all things. Namely, truth claims are really veils of power struggles and power moves, right? And so this is, for Kuiper and Bavink, the natural consequence of denying the Christian faith. Why? Because in the Christian faith, Concepts, words, meaning is outside of us. And if you deny that there's such a thing as reality outside of us, then what are these words that we're using all the time? If not struggles for power, if not a will to power, right? So um, what I said was, if in the past when I'm preaching or when Raymond is preaching, we're thinking about a truth that is higher than all of us, to which all of us need to conform, if that truth is now gone, what am I doing in preaching if not just trying to get you to submit to me? if not just enforcing the status quo, enforcing where I am in power. So that words become tools for an agenda. And it's, this is why the deconstructive movement is basically saying, right, activism and scholarship are really one and the same thing. Because if you're saying that you're just truth for truth's sake as your objective, you're veiling your own power motives. And for, for Biomic Kyber, again, this is a natural consequence, but you're replacing the older categories of good, the true, and the beautiful to oppressed, oppressor, and power moves and things like that. So you're, you're, you're still analyzing by way of something that's guiding you. So you're not deconstructing everything. Why don't you also deconstruct that? that? That all is reducible to power. So that's the first thing I would say. And the second thing as well is I said to, to her, um, ironically, this idea that truth is relative and truth is just a veil for power is very Western. And so it's always funny to me when people say that Christianity is the white man's religion because the thing that's imported from the West is not the Christian faith, by the way, right? It's this. And so when people talk about a post-colonial this or that, um, ironically, they're the ones colonizing the rest of the world because the rest of the world doesn't think this way. But they are importing it to the rest of the world. And when people come to my church in Jakarta and they've been studying in Western universities like in America or Europe or in Australia, they come to Indonesia and they say, well, you guys are Christians because you're Indonesians. You guys are still in the dark. I've been Westernized. And I know the truth. I know that gender is a construct. I know that religion is just a power game. And they're speaking like the colonialists did. We are here to enlighten you, right? And so if you're saying that you have to comport the Bible to this, you're actually saying that you have to conform the Bible to the West. And I politely refuse. So, you know, um, are you going to um, reject Christianity on the basis of your own parochial reason? Or are we going to accept, you know, the, that this is God's revelation and therefore this is the true 
global religion. This is the true global worldview. Why? Because again, this is tried and tested from generation to generation universally. We were just talking about African and Greco-Roman theologians, Tertullian and Clement of Alexandria, right? We were talking about Augustine. We were talking about the global church, therefore. And um, so Christianity is truly global. It's not the white man's religion. Would you all help me thank Greg for being here with us? All righty. Thank you.